0: An early happy new year to you. May we all find peace in the new year, just like our video showed. It's great to be in God's house with you today. God bless you for your attendance today on this holiday weekend. It's, it's great to be with you. I hope and pray that our corporate time of worship today will be a beautiful bookend to 2023 in your individual life and surely in the life of First Baptist Belton. It has been a tremendous year in the Lord. I hope that you are looking forward to a brand new year. And as we get started today, I, let me ask you a question. What did you see God do in your life this year? In your family's life? What did you see? Where did you see God at work? Where did God show up for you? As you're thinking of your accounts and I hope that they are a plenty, let me give you a few accounts in my life. It was early in the winter where God brought about reconciliation in my life with a fellow believer where tension had been present for over 12 months. It was in the early spring where I got to walk my only daughter down the aisle on her wedding day. It was later in the spring where I injured my knee, where for the next five and a half months on a daily basis I cried out to God for pain relief. God, please take this away. Help me to know how to move forward in a healthy manner. Please show me how to do that. It was late in the summer, maybe early fall, where one of my godly mentors, a gentleman that I met with on a regular basis, we shared life together. He read scripture over me. He prayed for me. We talked about the local church. We talked about godly pursuits. He was interested in my family. He listened to me, and all of a sudden, he decided to move away. How dare he do that? (laughs) And when faced with the dilemma of do I replace this gentleman or not, at first I thought, eh, eh, Eddie, you'll be just fine, man. You're doing a good job. And then all of a sudden I heard the voice of God. And he said, invite this wise man into your life. Invite this older man in the faith to do life with you. And I'm so glad that I did that. My family sitting down here at the front, my wife, my son, my daughter, my incredible son-in-law, and his two brothers, and they all know me well. They're like, one person? Eddie, you need like a team of people, (laughs) right? I need like a group of specialists is really what I need. I remember the All In Sermon Series. You remember that series? And I was reminded (laughs) about myself that too many times I try to take things in my own control. And when I do that... I develop trust issues with people. All of a sudden, um, anxiety creeps in, and then it camps out. Anxiety creeps in, and then it camps out. Ugh. I remember one Monday morning in our church staff meeting at 10 o'clock. I remembered on this particular day, I actually listened, and I was intent, and I was engaged for all 60 minutes in this staff meeting and then I know wow and then when we left after 60 minutes were over with it was as if the voice of God was reverberating in between my ears and in my heart it was a precious precious day and I'm so thankful to God for that day I'll share more about that with you in just a little bit these were some of my illustrations of God at work in my life what about you? What about you? Have you spent any time yet reflecting upon the goodness and the greatness of God this past year in your life? I hope that you will not close out this calendar year without doing that. At least for a few minutes. This is the early part of the sermon. I already have homework for you. Here's what I want you to consider. When you go to lunch today with a friend or with your spouse or a group of friends or maybe you're going to a big party tonight... I would invite you to add some redemptive work to that setting and to spend time one with another talking about the goodness and the greatness and the faithfulness of God in your life this year. May your spirits be buoyed as you hear those accounts with your friends and with your family. So before we tune into the TV tonight and we watch that big ball drop in New York City, right?, We celebrate New Year's Eastern Standard Time so we can go to bed early. Or maybe you're going to watch the CBS version of Nashville's Big Bash tonight. I don't know what you're going to do. But before all of that, we're going to spend time in God's Word together today. I invite you to take your copy of the Bible. Find the four-chapter book of Ruth. It's early on in the Scripture. And there we're going to read chapter 4 together in just a few minutes. As we look briefly at one of my favorite pieces of Scripture, the book of Ruth, one could suggest that the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. The book of Ruth, you see, doesn't have any miracles, doesn't have any grand revelations. It has simple people going about everyday life affairs. The life of the godly is not an interstate in the Midwestern plains that's straight and boring. No, what I would suggest to us today that the life of the godly is a two-lane road between Highway 190 and Belton High School. Think about it. There's some narrow passages. There are twists and there's turns. There's rocks everywhere. There's these cones everywhere. These big orange barrels. There's these pennant flags hanging down from wires. There's these bright flashing signs that tell you which way to go and when the road is going to be closed. And there's, of course, always the potential for wrong and fatal turns. You know... Along this hazardous twisted road of life that doesn't let you see very far ahead. There are frequent signs for you and I to read that says the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And at the bottom right hand corner not unlike any other great piece of artwork written with the unmistakable hand are the words as I live says the Lord. The story of Ruth is a series of setbacks. In chapter 1, Naomi and her husband and her two sons were, they were forced to get up and leave. To pack up, to leave their homeland of Judah because of a famine. Then Naomi's husband dies. Her sons marry Moabite women and for 10 years the women proved to be unable to have children. And then her sons die leaving two new widows in the house of Naomi. Even though Ruth cleaves to Naomi, chapter one ends with Naomi's bitter complaint. You'll remember this famous passage, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back. Empty is what Naomi said. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, she said. In chapter 2, Naomi is filled with new hope because Boaz appears on the scene. He appears as a possible husband for Ruth, but Boaz doesn't propose to Ruth there. In fact, he doesn't make any moves at all. At least that's the way it seems at first. So the chapter number two closes brimming with excited hope, but also with great suspense and uncertainty of, how is this really going to play out? In chapter three, Naomi and Ruth, they make a very risky move in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, they make a move. Ruth goes to Boaz on the threshing floor and says, in effect, I want you to be my husband but right when the tragedy of Roost widowhood seems to be blossoming into a brand new, beautiful love story, the city of Belton swoops in and says, You're no longer gonna drive on these two narrow, skinny lanes of highway. You're gonna flip-flop over here and you're gonna drive down these two narrow skinny lanes of highway. And people are gonna be confused for weeks to come. Especially at those intersections, right? You've been there, nod your head, you know what I'm talking about. Like Do I stop here? This is where the white line is. But if I stop here, I can't see what's coming left. And if I'm taking a right by the hilltop going to the high school, I've got to sort of get out there, make a sharp turn. I'm either either going to hit that cement wall or my nose is going to get too far down the other lane. Right? We've been there. We've been there. This would be a big barrier. A big barrier on the county road of Ruth's life. There's another man who, according to Hebrew custom, has prior claim to marry Ruth. The flawlessly honest Boaz will not proceed without giving this man his lawful opportunity. So chapter 3 ends again in the suspense of yet another setback. Let's read together chapter 4 of the Old Testament book of Ruth. I have my copy of God's word. I hope that you have yours as well. I'll be reading now the New International Version. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I I cannot do it. Verse number seven says, Now in the earlier times in Israel for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed the sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are my witnesses that I have brought you from Naomi, all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Milan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Milan's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth." Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. My prayer for you as the learners this morning, as the listeners and the audience this morning, my prayer for you is that you would notice that Ruth is one of the road signs in life for you and I to read and cherish. It was given to give you some end of the year encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in your life are not dead-end streets. You know what a dead-end street is, don't you? Please know beyond a doubt that in all the setbacks of your life as a Christian believer, that God is plotting for your joy. Point number 1, setbacks on the way To glory. After the midnight rendezvous in chapter three, Boaz goes to the city gate where the official business was done, and there the guardian redeemer or the nearer kinsman comes by. This is a relative that helps out a troubled family member so that the family was not dispossessed of land or left without an heir. And Boaz he lays the situation before him. Naomi is giving up what little property that she has. And the duty of the near kinsman is to buy it so that the inheritance stays in the family. To our dismay, the kinsman says at the end of verse 4, I will redeem it. I mean, we don't want him to redeem it, right? We want Boaz to do it. We want Boaz to do it. So again, there seems to be another setback. And the irony of this setback is that it's caused by righteousness. Righteousness. This fellow is only doing his duty. Sometimes loop 121 is all clogged up, not with rocks or bulldozers or barriers, but with good workmen and good workwomen doing their duty. Just when we're about to say, oh, no, stop the story. Don't let this other dude take Ruth. Boaz says to the nearer kinsman, Psst, hey, buddy. You know, don't you, that Naomi has a daughter-in-law and it would be your job to marry her and to have offspring with her in the name of her former husband, Milan. Psst, hey, buddy, you do know that, right? You're aware of this? Then to our great relief, the kinsman says in verse 6 that he can't do it. Whatever the reason, we're cheering in the background Right? We're cheering in the background as Boaz gets through that bottleneck right there by Belton High School and Frost Driving School. And he highballs it to the wedding feast with Ruth on his arm. You see, but there's a cloud overhead. There's a cloud overhead. You see, Ruth is barren. Or at least seems to be. In verse number 4, chapter 1, we're told that she had been married to Milan for 10 years and that there were no children so even now the suspense is not over with can you see why I said that the lesson of the book of Ruth is that the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory but they do get there you see life is one curve after another and we never know what is coming but the point of the story is that the best is yet to come no matter where you are in life if you love god if you have a relationship with the heavenly father through jesus christ our savior you're walking with him in the abundant life on earth with the promise of eternal life in heaven you're walking in intimacy with god if you love god the best is yet to come no matter what stage of life that you're in no matter what season of life today on the 31st of december you are in the best is yet to come quick question did you encounter any curves in the highway of life this past year truly only you whether you're on the bottom floor or in the balcony or you're online and you're watching through the video cameras only you can illustrate this sermon point at this point did you have any setbacks this year What did God teach you amidst the twists and the turns in life? Was he good? Was he faithful? Did he provide? Did you see his correction and his redirection this year? I mean, did you look to God at all amidst the perplexing turns in life this year? In this biblical narrative, we see that the roadblocks can sort of creep up on us. They can sort of come out of nowhere. Next we will see how the focus of this story, it shifts very very quickly. It sort of zooms in. It zooms in all of a sudden on the most experienced person in the story. Why is the focus on Naomi? You see the cloud over the head of Ruth and Boaz, it's big with mercy and and it breaks with blessing over their head in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. But notice how the focus in verses 14 and 17 is not on Ruth at all. It's not even on my main man, Boaz. The focus is on Naomi and the child. Raise your hand if you're a grandmother in the room. Raise your other hand if you love your grandkids in the room. Look at all these grandmothers. Everybody loves the grandmothers. You are the most popular. Naomi was the most popular part of this story, but why? But why? Early in my wife's career as a teacher, she had a student in her name, excuse me, a student in her classroom named Chaos. I know, right? Thankfully, it was spelled K-A-O-S, not the other way. And the student lived up to their billing, A handful, to say the least. Well, Naomi's name at the beginning of this book was Chaos, Chaotic Naomi. Perhaps that is how the author of the book wanted us to meet her, because the point of the book is that the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. You see, the story began with Naomi's loss, and it ends with her gain. It began with death, and it ends with birth, A son, for whom, verse 17, is the great destination of Naomi's long and twisted road. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi, not to Ruth, but to Naomi. Why did they say this? They said that because to show that it was not true. What Naomi said back in chapter 1, verse 21 Was that the Lord had brought her back empty from Moab. And if we could just learn to wait. If you could just learn to wait. And trust in God. All our complaints. Each and every one of our complaints against God would prove to be untrue if we would just wait my encouragement for you here is not to not to react too swiftly when you don't yet know what god is wanting to do in your life do not act so quickly because you don't yet know what god is wanting to do in your life amidst the twists and the turns and the perplexing points of life for if you remain in him if i remain in him I mean, circumstances at work, circumstances at school, circumstances in the neighborhood, circumstances in life. I mean, there's some good things that can happen. But if we remain in him, spiritual blessings will abound in God's time. If we would just learn to wait, we don't yet know what God is wanting to do in our life. It's imperative to understand that as we traverse through the upcoming calendar year of 2024, that God will be present amidst the setbacks of our winding roads. And you know what? He will routinely offer those blinking, flashing, bright arrows and lights. He will routinely offer directional signs for us to follow. Amen? Point number three, signposts of God's gracious work. And bitter setbacks, Ruth was written to help us see the signpost of the grace of God in our lives and to help us trust his grace even when the clouds above us are so thick we can't see the road let alone those signs that are blinking on the proverbial road. Let's go back and remind ourselves that it was God who acted to turn each setback into a stepping stone to joy. And that it is God in all of our bitter stories who is plotting for our good. Signpost number one, the gift of Ruth. First, when Naomi's whole life seemed to cave in while in Moab, it was God who gave Ruth to Naomi. We know this from two verses. In chapter 1, verse 16, we learn that at the root of Ruth's commitment to Naomi is Ruth's commitment to Naomi's God where it says, your God shall be my God. You see, God had won Ruth's allegiance in Moab. If you look at chapter 2, verse 12, it says that when Ruth came to Judah with Naomi, she was coming to take refuge under the wings of God. Therefore, it is owing to God that Ruth left her home and her family to follow and serve Naomi. All along, all along, It was God turning Naomi's setback into joy, even when she was totally oblivious to that fact. God was plotting for her good. Signpost number two, the preservation of Boaz. The preservation of my main man, Boaz. Naomi gives the impression in chapter 1, verse 12, that there's, there's no hope There's really not a chance. There's not a chance that Ruth could marry and raise up children to continue the family line. But all the while, God is preserving a wealthy and godly man named Boaz to do just that. The reason we know that this was God's doing is that Naomi herself admits in chapter 2, verse 20. She recognizes that behind the accidental meeting of Ruth and Boaz was the kindness of God who has not forsaken the living or the dead. In every loss that the godly endure, God is already plotting for their gain. And if you're even a little bit like me, who wraps themselves way up, way too much, into wins and losses in all parts of life, if you're anything like me, it's good to know that in every loss that the godly endure, God is already plotting for my gain and for your gain. Signpost number three, the opening of Ruth's womb. Who was it that gave to the barren womb of Ruth the child so that the neighborhood women could, could be right there by Naomi and they could shout out, a son has been born to Naomi. God gave the child. Look at chapter four, verse 11. The townspeople pray for Boaz and Ruth. They know that Ruth was married for a decade without a child, so they remember Rachel whose womb the Lord had opened long before. And they pray that God will make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. And so the author makes very clear in verse 13, who caused this child to be conceived, the Lord gave her conception. So again and again and again and again, in this book, it was God who was at work in the bitter setbacks of Naomi's life. When she lost her husband and sons, God gave her Ruth. When she could think of no kinsman to raise up offspring for the family name, God gave her Boaz. When Baron Ruth married Boaz, God gave the child. The point of the story is made in the life of Naomi. The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. Even after accounting for these street signs, these directional signs these signposts one may ask is glory I mean is the word glory too strong to use right here perhaps I'm overusing the word glory today I mean after all it's it's just a child it's a grandmother holding a little one after a long life filled with heartache you see but that's not the end of the story that's not the end of the story at all in 1912, a long time ago, John Henry Jowett, then pastor of the 5th Presbyterian Church in New York City, gave the Yale Lectures on preaching. There's a passage in one of his lectures which describes great preaching and gives us a vision of what the author of Ruth was trying to do when they landed the plane in this book. When they wrapped this book up, this is perhaps what the author was trying to do, according to Jowett. He described a great preacher as one who seems to look at the horizon. They look at the horizon instead of the the local landscape right here, right? The enclosed field right here. They're always looking at the horizon. That preacher has a marvelous way of connecting every subject with eternity past, with eternity to come. It's as though you were looking at a bit of carved wood in a Swiss village window. I think we have a visual aid on the screen. There it is. You see the streets. You see the the pretty colors. You you see the, the doorways into probably dwelling places, probably shops and stores all up and down that street where people could walk by and window shop and they could look at the figurines that people create from that wood. Joe, it says, and then you lift up your eyes and you, beyond that village, you see the forest where the wood is nourished. And even beyond the forest, you see the, the mountains, you see the everlasting snows. Yes, that was, was the way of great preachers in the past. They were willing to stop at the village window, but they always linked the streets with the heights of God and sent our souls roaring, roaring toward godly pursuits, is what Joet would say. You know, if this story of Ruth just ended in a little Judean village with an old grandmother hugging a new grandson, maybe, maybe glory would be too strong of a word there. But the author doesn't leave it there. He lifts his eyes to the forest and the mountain snows of redemptive history. In verse 17, he says very simply that this child Obed was the father of Jesse and Jesse was the father of David. All of a sudden, all of a sudden we realize that all along something far greater has been in the offing than we could ever imagine. God was not only plotting for the temporal good or blessing of a few Jews in Bethlehem. He was preparing for the coming of the greatest king Israel would ever know in King David. And the name of David carries with it the hope of the Messiah, peace, righteousness, Freedom from pain and crying and grief and guilt. This simple little story, it opens out like a stream into a great river of hope. One of the diseases of our day is triviality. The things which, with which people, like, uh, I'm not going to point fingers, I'll just point them at me. The, the things with which people spend most of their time are utterly Trivial. And what makes this a disease is that we were created in the image of God, which means we were created for magnificent causes. None of us in this room would would agree that we would be content with the trivial pursuits of this world. Our souls will not be satisfied with trifles. Why is there a litany of streaming subscriptions, right? all willing to take $5 to $15 out of our accounts every month, and we have that right at our fingertips. It's simply one of the many signs that we are or can be enslaved to our trivialities. We live in a Swiss village shop staring at the wooden figurines, and we rarely look past the buildings to see the forest and to see the eternal snows. We live in a perpetual and hopeless struggle to satisfy our longings with trifles. So what happens to our souls when that happens? Our souls just, they shrivel up. Our lives are trivial and our capacity for great worship dies. It goes away. On Monday mornings throughout the year here at the church... We have a staff meeting on Monday mornings at 10 o'clock. I alluded to that at the beginning. And if you're on the premises at 10 o'clock on Mondays, you are expected to be at this meeting. I joke with people sometimes and I say, God and everybody's at this meeting right on Monday mornings at 10. You're expected to be there. We have a very creative methodology of how we go about those meetings from one week to the next. It's not the same old, same old. It's, it's very creative. It's a variety of things. So one week we'll simply have breakfast with one another and we'll spend time in fellowship. It's awesome. The next week we'll have sort of staff ministry reports where every staff member has a chance to say, hey, this is what God is doing in my area of ministry. These are the triumphs. These are the joys. Here are my struggles. This is where I could use some help. Oh, by the way, you need to put this on your calendar, right? Staff ministry reports. It is what it sounds like. And it's really special. It's really special. To hear what God is doing in the life of our church from the people that are right there, passionate and intimate in those moments. Another Monday of the of the month, we'll have what we call staff development. Sometimes we have guest speakers. We read books. We read articles. We um, dissect things. We get into groups. We get into pairs, and we we um, we develop. We have staff development. It's pretty cool. Well, the other really Monday of the four. Four week months is we gather in room 247 and we sing praises to God and then we pray for all of you. That's what we do. We get together and we sing with a guitar, sometimes a cappella, and then we spend time praying for you. That's what we do. Now, I don't know about you, I know about myself. How do you act or react in meetings like that when you're not in charge? Be honest with yourself. How do you act or react when you're in meetings that you're not in charge? You know, I mentioned earlier on that in this one particular meeting on this day, I was fully engaged. Fully engaged. It was a special day, and this is what made it so special for me. Just a few months ago in the fall, our college ministry had their annual fall retreat. And some of our worship staff team, our worship staff members, went on this retreat with the college students. And they led them in worship and they taught and they shared. And they had a great weekend together with the college ministry. After that weekend was over, that next day, Pastor Josh asked Jordan Thomas. Jordan was up here with her husband leading us in worship this morning. She's a part of our worship, our worship team. She has a voice like an angel, right? An angel, And on that day, she brought the lesson in our staff development day. And she taught the very same lesson, I believe, that she taught the college students that weekend. And the lesson revolved around personal worship. Our personal time with God. And as I interpreted what she shared, as it hit my heart, as it hit my mind, it was about my prayer time, my time in Scripture, my meditation time with the Holy Spirit... And as I sat there listening to God teach me, remind me, and shake me up, by Jordan's words, I could hardly contain myself. It was as if God was giving me one application point after another. Bam, 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 bam. Eddie, this is where I need you to change right now in your relationship with me. And as I boiled it all down, It was as simple as me getting stuck in a rut by simply not choosing Jesus when I should. Instead, I was caught in the habit of choosing trivial things and allowing them to sway over my head like a cloud, impacting my words, my thoughts, my feelings, my actions, my reactions. When driving in the car, by myself, it was sports radio, not time and prayer. When I was mowing my yard with my AirPods in, it was YouTube, not podcasts meant for my Christian edification. When walking or running, it was Peacock or Netflix or Prime Video, not worship music to sing along to. These had been ongoing trade-offs that I have not always participated in, But there I was this past fall. And on that day, in that meeting, I heard what I call the sweet sound of conviction. Do you know that song? Do you know that medley or that tune? The sweet sound of conviction. I began to say no to trivialities and yes to the things that point me to Christ. You see, everyone sitting in the pew or in a chair today, everyone that takes a place on this platform or teaches in one of our classrooms or you have a Christian influence at your workplace or in your points of leisure or on your street, every one of us has an experience like this at one point or another, and each one of them, myself included, let me say especially me, needs the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. If that is you today, maybe you've been choosing the trivial over the holy. May you choose to change your focus today. For God is here for you, dear fellow Christian believer, and his grace and mercy and forgiveness can be found in your life today if you will look to him. What trifles are you choosing today? What is it that replaces Christ and his scripture in your everyday pursuits? Whatever it is, get rid of it. I mean, at the very least, minimize it. Minimize it and replace it with spiritual disciplines that will endear you to the Savior. As we close, let us look at the glorious work of God in history. The book of Ruth wants to teach us that God's purpose for the life of his people is to connect us to something far greater than ourselves. God wants us to know that when we follow him, our lives always mean more than we think they do. For the Christian, there is always a connection between the ordinary events of life and the stupendous work of God in history. Everything we do in obedience to God, no matter how small Is significant. It is part of that grand mosaic that God is painting to display the greatness of his power, his wisdom to the world and to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The deep satisfaction of the Christian life is that it is not given over to trifles. Serving a widowed mother-in-law like Ruth, getting dirty and gleaning in the fields like Ruth, Falling in love like Ruth and Boaz, having a baby. For the Christian, these things are all connected to eternity. They are part of something so much bigger than they seem. So after all, maybe glory is not too strong of a word. The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there because God sees to it. There's a hope for us beyond that cute baby and the happy grandmother. If there weren't, we'd probably be pretty miserable. The story points forward to David, and David points forward to Jesus, and Jesus points forward to the resurrection of our mortal bodies. When death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. The best is yet to come. That is the unshakable truth about the life of the woman and the man who follow Christ in the obedience of faith. I will say it to the young who are still very strong. I will say it to the downcast who today, they only see darkness. I'll say it to the new hire who is still bright-eyed and filled with hope. I'll say it to the new graduate who still has her whole future in front of her. I will say to the middle aged who might be tempted to just play out the string. I'll say it to the caregiver who is flat out, worn out, tired, and exhausted. I will say it to the old for whom the outer nature seems to be quickly fading. This morning, on the dawn of a new calendar year, I will say to everyone who can hear my voice right now, the best is yet to come. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for today, for the opportunity to take breath, to put our feet on the ground, to gather together in a corporate setting with others who love you like we do, Other people who put scripture as paramount in their life. God, we thank you for this special day. I thank you for the book of Ruth. Father, for its story. God, for for Naomi and Ruth and for Boaz. God, for, for you working all things out to show us that amidst the perplexing turns of life, they're not dead in streets this next year. But instead, God, if we will but look to you and see the signs that you point us to through Scripture, through the witness of other Christians, Lord, that we will get to glory one day, you will see to it and that the best is yet to come, God. May we read this book, may we cherish this book as a signpost in our life to point us, God, to, to be nearer to you. To not be satisfied with the trivial or the trifles of this world, but God, that we might live our life for you each and every day. I thank you for this church. I thank you for what you're doing in the life of First Baptist Belton locally, in our nation, and around the world. Lord, help us to be a gospel-centered church in 2024. And may many lives and hearts come to faith because of this sweet fellowship this next new year. For I believe the best is yet to come for First Baptist Belton. Thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.